Heavenly Father, would you take the words of my lips and the meditation of our hearts, and would it be a pleasing offering to you on this Palm Sunday? Amen. Did you enjoy our parade? It was great fun, wasn't it? Probably some of you will remember when the Scouts used to parade in. Yes, one or two nods there. The Scouts used to parade in behind the choir. It was great, wasn't it? And I'm sure you can all recall different parades you've taken part in. Les, Jerry, armed services, I'm sure you can remember those wonderful parades around the parade grounds when those kindly and soft-spoken drill instructors ever so politely asked you whether you'd mind awfully processing round the parade ground in your own time, of course. Yes, parades can be great fun. And there's that great sense of corporate pride, of unity, and that comes from being a sort of small part of something greater. But Luke's account of the Palm Sunday procession is altogether less grand. It's much calmer than the ones we read in the other three Gospels. There are no palms, no branches being waved in the air. So to understand Luke's version of events, well, we need to put his Gospel into the context in which it was written. In the 40 or so years since Jesus' death, things have become much worse for Luke and his church. Peter and Paul had been executed. The emperor Nero had taken to setting Christians on fire so he could use them as garden torches for his garden parties, in his palace parties. Then Israel rebelled against Rome and Jerusalem became an ugly battlefield which Titus demolished in AD 70. The temple was razed to the ground. Over a million people died. 97,000 others were taken into captivity. The last remnants of Jewish fighters and their families fled to the hilltop stronghold of Masada. If you've not been there, I would urge you to go. It's, It's an amazing place to go and visit. They held out there against the Romans for, what, another three years before they committed mass suicide. And then on top of it all, in AD 79, Vesuvius erupted. So Jesus' foretelling of the days of vengeance and destruction, which we read about in Luke 21, came as no surprise to Luke's congregation. And it's against this background that Luke writes his gospel. That Passover week, there were two processions. The earlier one was nothing less than a show of power and force. It was a military parade. And at its head was Pontius Pilate. Pilate, who entered the city from the west, is described as being draped in the gaudy glory of imperial power, horses, chariots, and gleaming armor. He was moving in at the beginning of Passover week to exercise control. In short, nothing got out of hand, because this was the week when the Jewish people told and foretold their story of God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt and insurrection was in the air. 
So this first procession was all about a show of military strength. And it came with all the trappings of a grand state affair designed explicitly to intimidate those who gathered on the roadside. But later on in that week, a very different procession comes in from the east, down from the Mount of Olives, where tradition said the Messiah would arrive from. Heading up this procession is an itinerant preacher from an obscure village. Just in front of him are some shepherds driving a flock of lambs. This is the same day when the lambs will be slaughtered for the Passover feast. And behind those lambs, we see a sort of ragtag collection of followers, all of whom, in obedience to Jewish law, are heading to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And this second procession, this second procession, well, the leader isn't seated on a horse at all. His legs are dangling from a young colt, one that's never been ridden before. In accordance with Jewish tradition, Animals that have never been written are reserved for ceremonial or sacrificial purposes. In the days when the judges ruled Israel, they used to ride about on donkeys. And if their sons accompanied them, no matter how grown up they were, they too had to ride a colt. It was a sort of mark of respect. Now in those days, a conquering king always rode a horse. Except, except when he was on a mission of peace. Then he'd switch to a donkey. And he did that to show that this was a symbol of his coming in humility and peace. <clears throat> 500 years beforehand, Zechariah, a Levite priest, had prophesied, See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we see a holy man, the son of a father who was to be a judge, riding in humility on a ceremonial colt, alongside lambs to be slaughtered. Easy enough, I think, for us to spot the symbolism, but it was probably less clear to his followers. And yet for Luke, it's the disciples, it's his followers who are central to the story. It's the disciples who acquire the colt for Jesus. It's the disciples who take their cloaks, put it on the back of the colt for Jesus to sit on. The disciples who help him to mount the animal. In Luke's account, it's only his followers who chant Psalm 118. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It's his friends, it's followers. They're the ones that make the noise. But in the Lucan account, they are not the ones, they are not the ones who later in the week change sides and call for his death. In the Lucan text, the Palm Sunday parade is subdued, it is less crowded. As one commentator put it, the procession is an event of and for believers, and its meaning lies in Jesus and in their faith in him. But at this moment, descending down from the Mount of Olives, well, their faces are jubilant. Now, 
Just contrast those faces, those jubilant faces, with the silent, stony faces of the Roman soldiers in that earlier procession. That military procession, led by Pontius Pilate, the fifth prefect or governor of Judea. Pilate was already a man with a reputation for political insensitivity and harsh treatment in the face of insurgency. He was a man who worshipped a whole stack of Roman gods. And the statues of those gods were carried in on that procession alongside the Roman standards, alongside the military standards. He was a man, and I speculate, he was a man who, as he paused on his journey from the west to view Jerusalem, may well have hardened his features further, set his face more resolutely to the task of exercising control over this Judean city. For seemingly, his was the power of the day, the real power of the day, on the day. Backed up by the might of Rome, he had 3,000 soldiers under his, uh, under his control, and he was there to enforce his will on the hapless population. So what about our second procession, our one coming in from the east, our one with the itinerant holy man dangling his legs over the young colt? Well, as they got to the brow of the hill, that's where the road goes down through the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley, well, they too, they too catch their breath. They take in the great sight of Jerusalem, the roof of the temple covered with real gold, the teeming population, this holy city with all its historic associations, its religious importance. And as they take all this in, his followers are suddenly stunned to open-mouthed amazement because their leader, as he approached Jerusalem, and saw the city, he wept over it. And the NIV wept, it doesn't really give a very good translation. It's not really the word that Luke used. If you go back to the Greek conventional crying, weeping tears is the Greek word dakru. But that's not the word that Luke uses here. The Greek word that Luke uses is kleio. And that's got a very different meaning altogether. It means audible weeping. It's the sort of weeping which suddenly seizes you so that you lose control. You cry out in loud spasms of heart-rendering sobs. No wonder the disciples were stunned to silence. There was Jerusalem with all its privileges, its prophets, its means of grace, the sacrificial system, the Hebrew Bible, the scholars, the rabbis, the teachers. Yet, for all that pomp, and for all that learning, they were blind to the huge significance of that second procession that was about to descend upon them. And God had warned them many, many times in the Hebrew Bible to prepare for this day. This is 30 AD, and Jesus weeps because he alone knows the consequences of this spiritual blindness. Forty years later, in 70 AD, when Titus had his army destroy Jerusalem, the Romans didn't just knock it down. 
They laid siege, siege to it for year on year, and they slowly starved the city to death. Arguably one of the most terrible events in history. Women killed their own husbands to eat. The Roman soldiers just hung around outside. They waited until the people were so famished, and then they marched in, and they slaughtered them by the thousands. No wonder, no wonder is it that Jesus wept great, great sobs, great hard-rendering sobs. And today, we too can see ugly military processions. Only these ones are distinguished more by their vapor trails. And they carry not marble statues of false gods, but icons that release death and destruction on the homes and families below, which in turn ignites other processions of the frightened, of the hungry, and of the displaced. And sadly too, Jerusalem still has its daily processions. Orthodox Jews who parade noisily through the Arab bazaar in ceremonial dress on their way to the Wailing Wall. Or Muslim girls in hijabs and burqas who parade around the Temple Mount seeking to proselytize. Ours is not the first generation to wonder if the end is near, to read the signs of the times as signs of God's absence. It happens whenever the known world falls apart, when governments collapse and famine sweeps the land, whenever rivers run with blood and whole nations crumble under the weight of their eroded values. The prophet Daniel thought it was happening in his day, Jesus thought it was happening in his and Luke's generation thought the same thing when, they, when Luke wrote his gospel. But according to Luke's gospel, these are not signs of God's absence at all, but they're signs of renewed hope, of God's sure and certain presence. Because if Jesus had saved his own life, if he'd turned that procession around on the brow of the hill, gone on a speaking tour instead, written some books. Well, there's no telling how long his movement would have lasted, maybe a hundred years or until the books fell apart. But because he was willing to lead that procession into Jerusalem, to collide with the authorities, to commit his life into the hands of the leader of that other military procession, because he did that, God could raise him from the dead. Because he was willing to carry on into Jerusalem to his death, people today can discover that death isn't the worst thing that can happen to them. Because he was willing to die on that cross, then a new community could come to life in his name. A community of which we are part. One that redefines its life on the basis of his death. At the risk of his own life, Jesus brought the kingdom of God within the reach of the city, beloved of God. But the city of God wasn't interested. They'd, they'd better things to do. 
Luke's account of the procession into Jerusalem shows us how, as the new community of his disciples, the love of God can be displayed so that we too can reach the disinterested in our town. Be for our nation today what Jesus was for the nation of Israel then. It shows us that this first century procession, which ended at the cross, begins with a fresh new offer that is universal to all, an offer for everyone to leave behind at the foot of that same cross everything, everything that humankind has done and is doing to mar and deface God's world. Last week, Mike talked about wrestling with God the Father in prayer. This week, the Son of God, in the power of His Spirit, invites us to parade with Him again. We began our service with a parade of victory, a parade that God calls us to continue as His people, the people of Jesus, with His message message of jubilant new hope his universal invitation to taste the fruits of forgiveness, his invitation to all to join our procession, enter through the gates of righteousness, start afresh, live again in God's new world, the world he died for in love. Amen. May the Spirit of the Lord be with us as we bring his good news to the poor. Release the captives and sight to the blind, and as we proclaim the year of his favor.